Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, before we get the show started, I wanted to let you know we are giving away a bunch of brand new black magic gear. Yeah, cameras, switchers, DaVinci Resolve licenses, a bunch of awesome stuff. So stay tuned to learn how you can enter to win free gear from black magic. And we're going to tell you all about it later on in this episode. Now cue the music. Hey everyone, welcome to the 265th episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. This episode is brought to you by patron Kevin O'Brien, and I'm shouting out Kevin O'Brien because he has been one of our longest $10 patrons, and uh, we love you, Kevin, so thank you. We appreciate it, buddy. I'm Warren Kaplan. And I'm Ed Enloe. Today, we've got Tim Johnson and Mike Milden, the co-creator and director of the new Paramount Plus series, For Heaven's Sake. It's a hilarious, quirky true crime docu-series that talks about the history of a small town and small town crime and the disappearance of a person through the lens of like family stories basically so the classic stories of like stories that were passed down through generations and through hearsay and like a small town and how they perceive and understand and eventually even maybe solve a missing person's case yeah it was really fun talking to tim and mike they made a really unique show that's yeah, that that just seems really cool and the way that they got to this show is really interesting they had the Dan and Tony from American Vandal attach themselves to do like a comedic docu style show because they had experience in doing that and just hearing their process and hearing their attitude and how the creators are also the talent in it. I don't know. There's just something so endearing and like lovable about this whole experience and how it became this awesome TV show. It's really cool to talk. And I think we also learn a lot just in general about documentary filmmaking and Tim's approach to it, who was the director. Yeah. And, and both of our guests had, uh, you know, a substantial amount of history and experience behind them. But this was a step up in a lot of ways for them. And just... We talk a lot about how they mustered the courage and ability and strength to just 
you know, come through on their first TV show, right? I think, you know, it's a thing that we're all dreaming of and hoping for and things like that. But I think that they're experiencing firsthand that thing of like, oh shit, my dreams came true. Now what? You know, I got to actually pull this thing off. And also it's a little bit bigger and more serious and more real than I thought it was going to be. And how um, that really encouraged a lot of growth and they had a lot of mentorship. And, you know, I think it's a really good conversation, especially for people who are looking to be both in front of and behind the camera or just create their own show, generally speaking. Yeah. And one last thing I really love about Mike and Tim specifically on the podcast is they have kind of different backgrounds. Like Mike really comes from a scripted comedy background. He's acted in a lot of things, done a lot of sketches. He made a show called Trophy Husbands. He had a video go viral on Pornhub, I believe. <laughs> and Tim is really like a documentary guy. He, he actually edited... Action, which is a, a Showtime docu-series uh, whose director, Luke Corum, we've had on the show in the past to talk about it. So kind of some fun ties to just shoot it and also to people that just really work their way to get to where they are through a lot of hard work. So it was really fun talking to them. And I am pretty sure you're going to enjoy this conversation. Yeah. Well, uh, before we get to that, one quick reminder that we have our Patreon page, patreon.com slash justshootitpod, which is the place that you can show your appreciation by throwing us a couple bucks. It's a recurring thing every month. Like, throw us a buck or two. You won't even notice it. Or ten bucks gets you a hat, which is pretty great also. Yeah. You know I have this mint. Do you use mint to track your finances? Do you know about mint? I do the worst version of both. I ha- get emails from mint, but all of my information is out of date so it just tells me that i spent zero dollars and that something must be wrong but i continue to get those emails every week for five years yeah well so i'm kind of in the same boat except somehow my accounts are still connected and today it emailed me and told me i have way too many subscriptions going and that i should cancel some of them and i and i have like hundreds of dollars worth of monthly subscriptions so much so I spent so much on monthly subscriptions that I know I would never notice one or two dollars that went to my favorite podcast. Just shoot it. Like, I'm sure you won't. So yeah, check it out. Patreon.com slash just shoot it pod. Make us one of your subscriptions. Why not? And if you don't want to, if you're not in the place to do it. We totally get it. We won't hold it against you. Yeah. The show is going to be free forever. We'll just and never so, hire you. Uh... <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> no, we um, probably will. Yeah. <laughs> so that's it. Thanks, everyone. And here are Mike and Tim. Hey folks, we're interrupting this incredible episode of the podcast to tell you about a new sponsor that we're working with, Front Row Insurance Brokers. One of the challenges of being a filmmaker is that there's a lot of risks that we take and we really just want to focus on making good stuff. So what if there was a company that could take those risks, manage them for us while we are being artists? That's right. Front Row Insurance Brokers arranges film production insurance to cover the risks associated with your production. They cover features, TV shows, documentaries, commercials, music videos, webisodes, basically anything you can watch on big media or phone-sized screens. Yeah, Front Row will help you focus on your artistic vision by transferring all the risks to them and minimizing your production hazards. And they cover any budget from $2,000 all the way up to $200 million. There's nothing that's too small or too big. If you are shooting in Canada, use coupon code JUSTSHOOTIT50OFF for 50 bucks off your film production insurance. That's promo code JUSTSHOOTIT50OFF 50 to save 50 bucks. And if you're shooting in the U.S., that same code can be redeemed offline by mentioning it to a broker, by email, or over the phone. It's like a cool password if you're in the U.S. That's Just Shoot It 50 Off. Check them out. Let us know how it goes. 
As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Subtle results. Still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. 
Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulties swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. What's going on? So, Mike, you said you heard, you've listened to our podcast before? I have. I have. Listen, guys, I, so we made a documentary, a documentary series, and I remember when we got greenlit, I was like, oh, perfect. I know very little about making a documentary series. So I went to your podcast and actually listened to a bunch of documentary filmmakers talk about the process. So thank you. Thank you for asking the right questions. And thank you for uh, uh, being as curious as I am about the process of every single person, because I think it's very different depending on the person. And I think it's like, you guys helped me learn that there's no one right way to do it. So heck, thank you guys. Sure. Yeah. I mean, thank, thanks to all of our documentary guests because um, we, we don't know anything about documentary either. You know? Like, yeah. <laughs> like I so actually brutal. was like uh, actively avoiding documentary guests for a while until we had a few, a couple directors on that. Yeah, probably Abby, documentary right? directors. Abby, yeah. Abby, Abby Fuller, Fuller. Who did who did chef's table, which was like an early episode where we were like, Oh, this show's kind of good. You know, yeah. <laughs> it kind of rocked my world. Just realizing how much story documentary filmmakers think about I, almost like more so than narrative filmmakers, because uh, I think as filmmakers, we're all kind of taking pieces and putting them together and trying to arrange them in a way that's interesting. But I think as a documentary filmmaker, you have to like start with like such a wider lens on like what what there is to look at, and then Abby talked about uh, Chef's Table being like a a hero's journey type of story, and just thinking about that really opened up my eyes right. to documentary yeah. filmmaking. So, so fun little fact, fun little fact. Uh, you guys had Luke on who did like Delt, and then he did he was talking about doing action, and then after he he was on, I watched action. And I was like, oh, this is really good. And then when Tim was put forward by Tony Ascenda, fellow just shoot it uh, guest of yours, I was like, oh, I've seen work he's done because Tim edited for that show. So oh, I already, cool. I was awesome. You edited for him. action? Yes. So I've actually also heard your podcast before. I heard Luke on it and uh, some other episodes. But yeah, I, I cut on action and... That was a super fun job working with Luke and uh, the rest of the team there. It was a wild show in the best of ways. But you're right. Like documentaries, just it's always changing. And like the story on the ground is always changing. And then also in the edit, you're always just juggling and having to make these decisions of like, what is the best story to pursue in this one moment? And there are always like 10 different or more permutations of what that story can be. So it can it can be you know it can be spin you around a little bit sometimes, but it's it's super fun and rewarding. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, I feel like I would always fear just like not choosing the right direction to go. Oh, you know, like it, you do. Like for heaven's sake, is on air and 
You're like, we oh man, we really we beefed it. We really yeah. chunked it. No one watch it, please. We should have made yeah. a different decision. No, no, of course exactly. not. But but tell us actually, guys, because we want to get into your show. But tell us what for heaven's sake is about. Give us kind of the top down, the elevator pitch, as it were. So the documentary is an eight-part documentary series streaming on Paramount Plus, and it's it follows the disappearance of my great great uncle Harold Heaven. So it's a real it's a real story that happened to my family. But for the longest time, it was a campfire story and just something that would be told around said campfire, a ghost story, if you will. And then we got a hold, like me and my best friend, got a hold of the 1934 police reports, and it had a lot of true crime oomph to it. So. We basically decided, and we're both comedians in Toronto, to go back to my cottage, uh, small town, Minden, and we we tried to solve this 87-year-old cold case. And it's not your typical true crime because we have to, we don't have all the access. A lot of the suspects aren't alive. Like we really have to use out-of-the-box methods to solve this bad boy. So it's a wild journey. Also, I think it's important to point out that tonally. You know, there's a lot of true crime references out there, you know, in the, uh, you know, All Be Gone in the Dark, Amanda Knox, the Jinx, sort of like these these more hard-boiled, serious, capital S serious documentaries. And this has a much more playful tone, even though there are some kind of like heavier ideas and part of it. Tell us a little bit about that and, and why you decided to approach this story that way. I'll let Tim touch on this, too, because... That was like the biggest conversation we had with everybody, like every person we brought onto the project, like Tony and Dan from American Vandal, we had to talk about tone and we had to talk about like, how do we see this? Even when we brought on like Funny or Die as a partner in production, the ironic thing was they wanted to pull back the comedy and they wanted to focus heavier on the mystery. And that was a lot of just the push and pull of yeah. They're what, like, we're really uh, focusing more on the die side of the business. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, exactly. Yeah, Finally, yeah, that name exactly. pays off. Honestly, I've said that so many times. I've never clicked with that joke. It's been right in front of me. Uh, but yeah, then so when Tim came on board as the director, he was very focused on like where the heart is with this story and where like how much of this mystery can we really, can we feel? Because it happened in 1934. So you really have to use a lot of different genre conventions to make the audience feel. And also like same thing, like you guys said, like don't forget to laugh. Like, Jackson and I can't help but be playful on camera, so you have to include some of that. <laughs> Wait, so can we? I'm actually super curious about the pitching process and like how you put the whole thing together. Because I have like dead people from the 30s in my family too. Maybe we'll we'll steal some ideas from you. So did you know you didn't know each other, Mike and Tim, before this project? No, no, we didn't. So Mike, you originated this whole thing. Yes, with with my comedy partner Jackson Rowe. Uh, he's we we started a sketch troupe together. Right. And I read in your bio that you you made a lot of videos for the World Wide Web. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're available online. So you've, you, you're starting with like, okay, I'm a funny guy and I've got this, you know, I've got a comedic sensibility, I should say, right? And then also this campfire story that you, you realize could be interesting, right? What do you do next? How, how do you put it together? So I will try and tell the shortest version of the story. It's a little bit of a serendipitous moment. So at the time, Jax and I were pitching in Canada, like scripted shows. We we're like, we're ready to take the next step. And then around the same time, 
Muse Productions, which is like the main production company that produced our show. Courtney Dobbins, executive producer there, uh, executive producer on our show. She saw our sketches and she was like, these guys are very funny. We should have a brainstorm meeting. So she reached out to us and was like, have you guys ever done anything unscripted? Either way, we should have a brainstorm meeting. And the only thing I had at that point was like the only unscripted idea I had was my great great uncle's police reports. So we went into that meeting and it wasn't like a pitch us something. It was just like, let's talk. This is what Canadian broadcasters are looking for. And one thing she said was they're actually looking for true crime with a comedic spin. And I was like, well, this is perfect because we're going to find my great great uncle. I'm like, the, I brought out the police reports. Then we all hugged. We popped champagne. That's cool. No. We gave each other COVID. Uh, yeah, exactly. Been there. Exactly. Um, wait, no, but so, sorry, just to pump the brakes for a second. Did you, so she just randomly called you this person from Muse? Is Muse like known, they do unscripted things? Is that their yeah, thing? Yeah, they're, they're, they're both scripted and unscripted. They're a pretty b- big production company in both like Canada and the, the States. But did they find you because you have reps or because you have videos online that are super, are going viral? Or how does, how does someone just <laughs> randomly call you and say, we want you to pitch with us? It's so funny because our videos are like the farthest thing from viral. Um, and yeah, but ha- I was going to ask, can you say like at the time, the average number of views you'd have on a video, right? Because I, I think viral means a lot of different things for a lot of different people, right? Like you could be disappointed by 2 million views or you could be so stoked on 50, right? Just depending on where you are in the landscape, right? Yeah, no, it's a great, it's a great point. It's uh, like to put it in perspective, we, like if we were lucky, we would get 3,000 to 5,000 views. Our most viewed video, and this isn't even a joke, was the, the video in the first episode. It's like where two, the two of us are peeing on each other. Long story. But we put it on I'm porn. Sure jellyfish are involved somehow. <laughs> But we put it on Pornhub and it got over 40,000 views on Pornhub. We put it as, on as a joke. And yeah, yeah. that was our most viewed. Anyways, so. that That's very, as a tiny tangent, do you guys know Ryan Creamer? No. He, he's like a, a stand-up, just a, a sketch comedian. And he has had, like won a Pornhub award, actually. Because, he, and his real name is Ryan Creamer. He's worked at College Humor for years. And he would, you know, like have explicitly titled videos but where he literally was doing like the nice interpretation of that you know like it would they would be, be like you know a group of of polite young men complimenting a woman in a respectful manner or whatever and they were so funny and so deadpan anyway um so yeah the porn there's porn up checking out <laughs> there you go anyway Mike, you were saying <laughs> I, I can't so, so you had this brainstorm meeting, right? So you you kind of somehow wait, you wait, 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 but you never radar. you never answered my question yeah. of how why you're just randomly getting called from production companies in Canada. So that's where I said it was uh, with the farthest thing from viral was uh, one of the guys that I did do uh, some like freelance work with, like as a freelance director. He was a freelance DP, and I showed him one of our sketches. He became a big fan, and then he ended up showing. Courtney on a plane because they were shooting a sizzle together and that's how it all kind of came together. That's awesome. That it's a thing. Like I tell people this all the time and I know it's like the most obvious thing, but whenever like a new director is like asking me what I should do, I'm like, just put your videos on Facebook and like send them to your friends. Cause like that, that's how you get these meetings. People will randomly be like, Oh, I'm looking for this exact thing. I mean, even if it seems. And also it's a hard thing to explain, but like, executives love discovering people 
They love to be the genius who has the great taste that found this diamond in the rough. And so like, you know, I, I didn't realize it until like years later, but I was like, everybody knows you, your, your famous, like your favorite famous comedian. Like you can't come in and be like, Hey, did you guys see someone so special on HBO last night? They're like, yeah, we were at the taping, you know, like there's this weird, like cool kid competition. So like being like, Hey, I've got this video. It's going to blow up. These kids have got it. You know, that's that's the game that they're all playing. And it, it was funny, just to your point, that even that played a part in the pitch because we wanted to, to make it seem like one of the executives that helped us with the pitch of Funny or Die wanted to make it seem like we were just these guys in this small town, you know, like we were just... The, Not media yeah, savvy, exactly. Off the beaten yeah. path country. Exactly. <laughs> he was like, what, did you, what do you do for a living? And I was like, oh, I'm an editor, director. And he's like, God damn it like no what do you like uh, anything weird come on <laughs> like, like you, do you serve coffee what was your college yeah, job yeah yeah that's so yeah. funny um so okay so you're at muse you pitch them this idea they're like we're in, into this let's develop it together and do they connect you with funny or die so once again to your point Aaron, was where you just put it online uh one of the first relationships we made with was with funny or die they would feature our videos and so it it became this thing where we actually started talking to the digital people and then back in like 26 or 2017 we made a pilot like a self-funded 27 minute pilot uh anyways so we had a meeting with their long form department and one of those guys was the guy that's currently the executive producer of the show but he didn't like that show idea um but he gave us advice on like and he said if you ever have anything else like feel free to come to us so as soon as we had this the muse people was like hey, someone that really did it well was American Vandal and Funny or Die did American Vandal. So maybe we should partner with them. So I actually made the introduction. I'm proud of that. I made the introduction between Muse and Funny or Die uh, and said, hey, you two should meet. This is our show idea. And then they got on board after a bunch of uh, more conversations. So, so, but those conversations, you know, what was on paper already? How fully formed is the idea, right? Because we, we were at, you know, the brainstorming stage once upon a time, you've got these police records, you know, are you writing Bibles and decks and all of those materials before you're talking to Funny or Die? Walk us through that part as well. With Funny or Die, what happened was, so at this point, we have already pitched it to CBC, which is like the Canadian broadcaster as a 10 by 10. So we were like, it's 10 minute episodes and each episode we explore a different theory. And we didn't have too much meat on the bone as far as the mystery. Uh, it was more like Jackson Mike are a little goofy and stuff. And then when Funny or Die came on board, they challenged us. They're like, well, we would be pitching it in the States as a 22. And if we're pitching it as a 22, we want to really take the mystery seriously. And Jackson and I did want to take the mystery seriously. We just had the anxiety of like, do we have enough here? And how much more can we get? So in that time, I kept talking to my family more and more about like what each family member knew and little tidbits that are in the show now, like crazy stories came out and it was like, oh no, there's, a, there's more here. And then just, just kind of, so at the same time, it was like a parallel thing where Funny or Die wanted us to develop it to be bigger and longer. And so we really worked hard on the pitch with them. And like, we really had to make sure it felt like this mystery when we were in the room pitching, like this mystery had legs. And just confirming, um, you and Jackson are getting paid zero dollars at this point, right? For any of this. Zero this is all just yeah. like, we're talking, we're developing, we're going to see if this is worth doing something with. Uh, and to that point, how long have you been 
working on this at that point like you like from the brainstorm conversation to like when you finally took it into pitch or it was ready it was on its feet so it, it actually all happened pretty fast uh which is fortunate but also slow like it's basically uh we started like the original brainstorm meeting was in september and then we filmed the sizzle so we had this sizzle we filmed it in november and once we had the sizzle edited, I edited the sizzle. It started to get everyone's attention. Like people really liked the tone of the sizzle and like liked where the humor was. They liked the trailer. Like it felt. And you paid for it and everything and just made the sizzle by yourself. So Muse, Muse basically paid for like a DP and uh, like people for us to go to Minden for a weekend. And so we filmed with some of my family members and like got the sound bites we needed. We ran around town and got some people to be like, this town's sketchy. Like, and like just use the, <laughs> that kind of stuff. Uh, but I will tell you one of the, I think, you know, Lorraine Scafaria who did Hustlers, that JLo movie, like she has this like incredible sizzle that they made to get the movie made and that to get her attached as a director. Cause she wrote the script, but she wasn't attached as a director till kind of later on. And, that sizzle is on Twitter and it's like one of my favorite things to like send people to that are doing this thing. So if you want to, you know, once your show comes out and everything it would be awesome. To is see, it, is to that sizzle, sizzle really similar to the movie? Or? It's like, it's like a rip -a -matic. So they, it's all edited out of other movies, but yes, if you watch it, if you've seen hustlers yeah. and you watch the sizzle, you'll be like, yeah, it's like a slam dunk setting up like why, what type of movie she wants to make and how the movie ended up. It's like a real clear line. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty wonderful. Actually, on that topic, I Looper, Ryan Johnson on his Vimeo channel actually does have a Looper rip rip as well. And I, I was just revisiting it the other day and realized in his description, he explains that the reason he did it like, I, I don't know that he necessarily was having a hard time finding financing or whatever, which is oftentimes, you know, you want it for pitch material, but he wanted to prove to marketing or that it was a marketable film, basically, because it's got such a unique world building aspect to it. Like there's a lot of rules to the way that time travel works and, you know, it can be a little confusing or whatever. He was he just wanted to prove that you could explain it concisely in a compelling way, which I thought was really interesting, but also sort of like if you are in the process of, say, pitching a show or developing something, making a compelling sizzle forces you to be crystal clear with what is good and interesting and unique about your show. You know, like you can't mess around with that. Like you've only got a minute and a half or whatever, you know. Oh, when I think of a feature, like when people ask me for feedback on a script or are sending me a script to think to figure out if we should make. I all, my first question is always like, what does this trailer look like? You know, and like if there aren't any great trailer scenes to like page 50, there's like an issue with the script. But, it, you know, so many times Matt and I even like debate this all the time. Like if you have a great script, but you don't have like maybe a super deep track record of being a feature filmmaker, like should you create a proof of concept, a sizzle, other things, attachment, you know, like can the script on its own do much? Um, and it's great to hear every time we hear on the show, like people like you that actually go out and show people like, this is what it's going to feel like and look like. So good job for, uh, oh, thank you. that's one point for Oren, uh, zero points for Matt. <laughs> okay. So, so when does Tim come into play? Yeah. And, and then also Tim, how do you <laughs> feel about, you see the sizzle, right? And then you're like, okay, like is this, you've already, even before a pilot is shot, right? All of a sudden there's like a, a reference point that everyone's signed on to. Right. Like I'm assuming the sizzle's a big part of what sold the show. 
people are like, oh, we love it. And then there you go. You've got a template. How do you feel about that as like a, as a filmmaker, you know? Yeah. To answer the other question first, um, I came on once the show was sold, which I think might be a little bit ahead of where we are in Mike's timeline. But I came on once the show was sold. And uh, I don't know, maybe we should get there first. Sure, that, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's worth it. Yeah. yeah. So I, I'll, I'll speed it up a little more. But basically what happened from where, so Funny or Die helps us, like we work on the pitch for months and we're kind of like fleshing it out. And the pitch script is kind of like our holy grail because we know this on paper doesn't make sense tonally. You have to see Jackson and I like talk about the mystery and talk about my family members that are in the documentary. Can I ask um, you what the opening sentence is of the pitch? I think it was like in 1934, my like exactly how I pitched you guys. That's a whole nother topic of like pitch scripts and like how you have to like fake enthusiasm and stuff. But, uh, <laughs> but so one of the interesting facts, so we had this pitch script and I'm this like pretty rookie, like, I'm pretty green when it comes to all this like pitching stuff. So I'm like, okay, let's do this. Let's go out. Let's pitch. And then one of the executives at Funny or Die, Joe, was like, ah, like, feels like we need some executive producers on here because I don't think people will trust just you guys. And I was like, yeah, but that's why we partnered with you. Like, ah, let's go out. Uh, and then he's like, no, I think we need like people that have knocked this out of the park before. American Vandal, like tonally, they they knocked it the comedy with the. Uh, the sincere, like seriousness of everything. So then we had to go through the process of pitching Tony and Dan and kind of talk about the tone as we talked about the same conversation with Funnier Dies. Like, well, how do we see the vision now? And they ended up coming on board and then we finally took it out. And the pitch was kind of our, I've, you guys have pitched probably many, many a times, but that was my first time being in those rooms in America. And just like, it was much more of a song and dance than Canada. Like Canada, we just casually talked about the idea America was like, hi, I'm Mike. This is Jackson. He's my again. And it was just like, yeah, let's yeah. choose his IMDb that, was- pro score. Um, <laughs> yeah, I've actually pitched to CBC in Canada and it was quite oh, really? casual. Yeah. Oh, sounds nice. Sounds but fun. when Tony was on, he, you know, he gave us the story of pitching American Vandal and it, it does, you know, he told us about the pitch. Like it does kind of start in the same way, you know, like on September 5th. At 11 p.m., somebody drew three dicks on sure. teacher's yeah, yeah. car or whatever, right? I feel um, like he maybe even had a dossier with him. I oh, feel yeah, like yeah. that's part of the story. They did, yeah. Yeah. So um, did they Did they reform the pitch once they signed to come on? Not really, like not too much. They basically added, uh, there was like intros at the top where it was, it was kind of like funny or die, Tony and Dan, this is why we believe in the idea. Let's get to the idea. Um and then we went into, and then for like 40 minutes, it was just Jackson and I and no one else talking. So it was an interesting dynamic. It is like yeah. one of those things in a pitch that I think doesn't get enough credit. And and a lot of, and a big reason why it helps to have like EPs or someone else in the pitch, not because they're like these geniuses that are going to make your idea so much better, but they can like tee you up and say like, you know, here's Mike. He's like hilarious. He did this. He did this. He did this. He's like, yeah, so you don't funny. have to brag about yourself. Like someone yeah. else can help you out. And like when they brought us this idea, like this is what we fell in love with. And they're already giving them like things to latch on to, like during your pitch, yeah. you know? So yeah, yeah that's, that's, awesome that's how like if it felt like they would look at Tony and Dan and be like, oh, we loved your show. We have loved your show. And then they would look at us and be like, we have no idea who you guys are. Like, sure. so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> very interesting. That you know, one thing that is interesting too, uh, I wasn't part of the pitch process, but 
it seems like such a formative part of the whole idea of the series in a way, because kind of like Matt, how you were talking about how sizzle makes do the process of doing the sizzle makes you really focus and drill down on like, what is the core of this idea? What is it that's motivating the people? And once I came on and even all the way through the edits, like once we had shot the whole show, the pitch was still like a reference point for, for, people especially like some of the executive producers like tony and dan it's like they would always clock what people's initial reaction that initial audience was in the pitch room and what they latched onto and what was like the kernel of that moment that they responded to that that they had promised so far back ago but remembered like oh that's what we're trying to deliver on is this feeling and this tone and like using that I thought was so fascinating because I, I thought that a lot of that stuff would go out the window, but it served as like a really early kind of like pulse check on on what worked about the show, I think. Do you remember what it was in the pitch that was like the guiding forces that, that really got people excited about the show? Basically in the sizzle, one of the things we were playing with was memory uh, and like the, it happened so long ago. So there was one part where my aunt and my uncle were like, it was a double interview. And basically they were like, it, it's very dramatic, very dramatic. And then it just like the music cuts out and it's just like, he was your uncle. And then she was like, really? He was? <laughs> and, and, and then it goes right back into the dramatic music. Sure, so it was a sure, nice sure. moment to show the family warmth. Yeah, I mean, I guess it, that's a way of explaining that, like, yes, it's like this murder mystery, but also it's a family comedy, right? And, like, everybody's aunts and uncles, like, misremember family stories or bicker or whatever. So there, that element just becomes really clear and that that kind of undercuts any seriousness, you know. So you still want to know who who done it, right? But it's it, that's not the reason that you're buying into the show, basically. That was like kind of like the tonal kind of key to it as well, right? It's like a literally like three second piece of that sizzle where you're in true crime world, true crime world, true crime world. The bottom falls out and you're in family comedy and then you're right back in true crime. And so it was it, it really was like such a. It's so I hadn't really even thought about this until we're talking about it, but it's really fascinating that that seemed to stick in everybody's mind as like, oh, okay, I get it. Right, because even though I haven't seen it, it's it's not like a joke for joke's sake. It's like this instantly relatable idea of how we remember things and how we try to deconstruct things. And if I think of stories my parents or even my wife, frankly, say sometimes, I'm like, that is the exact opposite of what actually happened. <laughs> and that's a plot complication, right? That that just makes the mystery that much harder to solve, right? So it's a joke and plot at the same time. That's great. I love that. So uh, talking about tone, actually, and Mike, it, it seems like you were alluding to the fact that like sometimes you want to go for the funny when the mystery is the thing that's really compelling the viewer to stick with things. How did you guys decide when to crack a joke? versus like when do you want to undercut the mystery versus kind of keep pulling at that thread it was the big like kind of as i mentioned it was just the biggest conversation and like in every episode every like edit there would be a joke that like probably shouldn't be there or probably could go and you had people like tony you had people like uh 
a lot of people from Funny or Die were like, we should cut the comedy. And I was the guy in the corner being like, it needs to be funny. And like, and then so <laughs> this Tim is was, a comedy, right, yeah. guys? Yeah, yeah, Tim was, funny. Yeah, yeah. he was incredible at just taking all these voices yelling at each other and being like, here's the happy medium. I'm curious if you actually, Tim, built like some sort of structure where you're like, we should, you know, we have acts and, you know, now it's in this TV format. Like we should have something funny and something mysterious happen like in each act or cliffhangers that are kind of funny like like how did did any of that yeah play into it yeah so i mean this is one of the more fascinating parts of working on the show for me especially coming on so i have an editing background and you know what we found in the edit is like ultimately there is just a natural kind of balance that will work itself out if you're being disciplined enough about like kind of listening to it but it it didn't really start there it started way back before we actually started the show. And in, you know, I, I previously do, uh, directed a feature documentary, which was like mostly verite and uh, it was like a political race story. And so that's something where you just watch the events unfold. And then once you get in the edit you find the beats, you know, it was fascinating working on this show because we had such an interesting mix of people, right? It's like we had Mike and Jackson who came in as, you know, already like these, comic filmmakers who knew their idea inside and out. And then I didn't know you could do this, but I want to do it on every project I ever do again. But like on a documentary, we had a writer's room. It was a short one. It was like a week and change, but it was Mike and Jackson and me and a couple of the execs. And we had this super talented documentary, uh, documentarian out of Toronto, Jay Cheel, who came in as like a story producer and, um, and writer. And then Tony and Dan, who obviously had this like, you know, really great scripted background from doing American Vandal and other projects. And so we actually sat down with like, what do we know about the story right now? And how are we going to put it into eight episodes in a way that's engaging? And I'm going to go out on a limb and say that like story wise, you guys had done a lot of research, but like there was still a lot more to uncover, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was. Well, are you guys was, filming and editing and writing all at the same time? No. So we we did the the writing part. I mean, ultimately, yes, but like, because we were writing all the way until we basically delivered the show. But we did the writing part about two months before we started shooting. And then uh, we were shooting on and off for mostly three or four months, three months or so, and then came back and picked up some more, another, the the last chunk of the series after COVID hit in the summer, last summer. And so the writing, are you like saying like, okay, we're going to get an interview with these people and we will try to try to mm-hmm. extract We want to make sure we this. hit these points. Yeah, And then yeah. we'll get B-roll to support this storyline. And is that how it works? It was, it was, yes, that, but it was also more like uh, a little bit more macro than that too where we said, okay, we know that there are these key stories, one story from Mike's aunt that makes you want to know more about who this mystery person is. And then there's another story like that from Mike's uncle. I'm not going to, I don't know if we're in a spoiler world or not, but basically it was like, okay, we know that you got to hook the audience soon. Right. And so, but we also can't, hang on to certain information too long so that the audience doesn't get frustrated that we're just manipulating them, right? And so uh, we knew coming out of that writer's room what our 
cliffhanger endings to episode one and episode two were. And working backwards from that, we're able to kind of fill in some of the, the big kind of plot points that we knew we wanted to hit. But the, the trick was with at least like the way that I wanted to, to shoot it was like my verite background. I was like to give Mike and Jackson like the best chance at, you know, what they're comfortable with, which is improv. And for us to get these moments that feel like real, we can't be too prescriptive about how we're doing any of these in particular. So like, how do we kind of establish like this loose framework of what we want to get and then kind of plug in different shooting scenarios of how we do it? Like that's how we ended up with kind of that whole HQ vibe where we pretty much just turned this little cabin into like a, you know, a set. and we shot Mike and Jackson with two cameras and we did that for like days on end as we went through different parts of the story. And then we'd come back three weeks later once we had uncovered more parts of the story and we would like, but it it was such a fun, the editors I think kind of like hated me at first because we shot so much. But one thing that I'm kind of proud of is that I think that for Mike and Jackson, it was kind of a fun way to work and keep things loose. But also from our camera team's perspective, like they were able to just really kind of shoot to Mike and Jackson and keep it feeling not like staged to the extent that we could. Right, right. And also gives you the latitude story wise to, you know, that that can be the glue that kind of sticks things together. Right. You, You realize, oh, I got this really great interview that revealed something new that we weren't anticipating. How do we contextualize it? How do we connect the dots for the audience? Oh, we can just have the guys connect those dots in real time in the space that makes sense for them. Yeah, that's great. Exactly. It serves kind of like as a VO kind of function almost. Same thing with like the Canoe FM, the radio. It kind of served as like a VO, but we kind of made a decision early on that we didn't want to have explicit voiceover kind of like American Vandal does. And that was just because we wanted it to feel real and lived in. And like we were on this journey with Mike and Jackson rather than hearing them after the fact kind of catch you up on everything. And ju- just, uh, just in case some viewers haven't, uh, some listeners haven't seen it yet. It could FM's the local radio station. So it's, it's basically like this small town, everyone listens to this one radio station. And we reached out to them before we started filming. And we we're like, we would love to do a mystery radio show with you guys. And they let us come on and like film six episodes and they aired all of them each week. So the town was up to date on the mystery, but obviously the world had to wait till the documentary came out. That's so fun. That's so fun. Did you find a lot of engagement from the town? Were people into it? Yeah, it was. Uh, that was that was one of the better parts of it. Was there's two ways that the town could have reacted: it was warm or cold. And in the winter time, it's only the locals. Like it's a summer, it's a cottager kind of small town. So we really got like the lifers that have been there for a long time. Uh, so we hosted like these at this local bar. We hosted mystery nights where we raffle off prizes to try and get people talking about it. We started Facebook groups. Like we really tried to just get, we put up a billboard. We did as much as we could and everyone slowly started to come out, come out and talk about it. Like most people knew it like just a little bit, but when we started asking specifics and we're like, Oh, did anyone have relatives that worked on the search party or the, was anybody a road worker? Then you start to have people come out and be like, my great grandfather was this or my grandfather. 
It, that is so fun and so funny. And it's like, what a elegant solution to the problem that I think a lot of the journalistic parts of of true crime, right? It's like a lot of it's like, okay, we well, just got to like spend a couple years talking to sheriffs and like Googling stuff, right? But that's not funny. That's not fun. So, oh, a trivia night at a bar and like a billboard is the charming, you know, for heaven's sake way to kind of short circuit a lot of that, that research. That's so good. It's also really interesting funny. though, like, cause we kept kind of going back to, some of those same principles from the pitch, right? Of like, how was it that you guys told this in the pitch that was engaging enough for this show to get bought? Because in order for us to be successful here in the field, we need to tell this story really well over the radio and really well at the bar so that, you know, it goes from being this random story in Mike's family from the 1930s to something that like a random person sitting in that bar is like, yeah, I think it was the road workers or like, I want to know the answer to this too. So the whole thing was just about like, how do you rope someone in from like pitching the show to like actually making the show. And then we were still kind of trying to perfect all that, even in the edit too, of like, how's the audience going to experience it. Right. That's awesome. So you, so you have uh, like a documentary crew in this small town in Canada in the winter What's that? What is that crew composed of? Like, how many people? What cameras? What's that? How does I, that work? I honest, Tim could be to Kim to speak this, but I thought it was going to be much smaller. Um, I thought it was going to oh, be interesting. Like your classic yeah, that's great. one. Uh, you're you're like one camera guy and one sound yeah, guy, and, and then you you're good to go. Like yeah, a French. Yeah, model. the first week was like half of it was like managing Mike's anxiety about like showing up <laughs> to his family's house with like the massive crew of 12 people that we had, you know, uh, which <laughs> well, I got too. I yeah. Yeah. 12 people is a small number for a crew, but that's a lot of people in your mom's house, you know, to, like to be over for dinner. Yeah. Yeah, totally. That's such a funny personal challenge too, because like, like Mike, were you kind of like d downplaying things or inadvertently sort of like trying to prepare them for something that was much smaller than your, you were anticipating? Yeah, uh, that's exactly that's to a T. I was I was basically trying to just be like, yeah, it's not that big of a deal. We're just going to talk about Harold for two hours ish, like show up with a camera. And we had filmed the sizzle, right? And those that was on like a GH5 with some lights set up. And they even thought that was big. But then you bring in like two RE minis, like huge sheets. You're moving everything around to make it like look polished with that premium look. So I was just like the first interview was my like, Papa, which is my gr my grandfather, who's eighty seven, and when I was phew, nervous, um, but it went really well. So, uh, and I got we got in the flow of things and got used to it. It was just a a learning curve for me. Do you? Uh, I feel like every once in a while, uh, on like like a reality or documentary thing, I'll stand in. You know, like if you know maybe someone's prepping someone or something like that, and you realize like oh, like when lights are pointed at you, even if they're small lights it is otherworldly. It feels strange. And so I think it actually is kind of valuable to like literally stand where your subject is going to be just so you kind of get a little bit more empathy towards like what they're going through because it's weird. You know, even if you're like, oh yeah, it's just a couple teeny tiny lights. It's no big deal. You know, like I'm being restrained, right? Yeah. 
So to your point, Matt, we had a, in one of the episodes, we do exactly that where we've been interviewing all these people and drilling them with questions. So Jackson puts me in the hot seat and I felt exactly what you're talking about where it was just like, oh, wow. Okay. This is, you could barely see behind the, like the bright light and stuff. Not, not fun place to be. I I love doing it on every set, standing where the actors are going to be and then just having them roll a little bit. And then I just like look in the lens and say, uh, welcome to Oren's director's reel. And then I just, uh, my whole reel, director's reel is just a montage of me doing that. Yeah, it, it drives me nuts. He gets so, he gets so much work. It's yeah. just the same bit Directing over and over just, again. <laughs> just nonstop. Um, so Tim, just so who's, what makes up a 12-person doc crew? We have the two camera operators. We have a sound person. We have you. Yep. And then we had DIT kind of AC. And our camera team was in, in, insanely good. They were also doing like the lighting as well. So they were just everywhere. And it was it was three people. And then we had, I think, two PAs who were also everywhere assisting with the lighting and all that stuff. Producer. And are the camera operators pulling their own focus and stuff? So on the A-cam, which is kind of like the, the wider centered look, he kind of had a whip focus puller uh, for that one because that didn't really change very often. Um, and then our second unit DP and first AC, Vanessa Chow, she was using a remote on the second camera, which Jared was operating. So he was kind of sitting between the two cameras, like, you know, like a DJ, like, you know, operating both essentially. The AC was pulling focus on the tight angle and the DP was pulling it on the focus wide. Focus for both the cameras. The wide didn't really change. Gotcha. Okay. He was just kind of checking it every now and then. I see. Great. Stuff. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. But, great. Okay. And do you have... Obviously, you've edited a ton of doc stuff and shot a ton of doc stuff. Do you have like a standard way that you like to shoot interviews? Like what's the best way to shoot an interview? Or does it really depend on the project? I don't I think it really depends on the project. I mean, you know, one one huge, huge advantage that we had on this project was, you know, this is like the the first TV show that I've directed. Um, The only thing that I directed previously was uh, like, you know, of this like substantial length was this feature documentary that I did, but that was mostly just me and a DSLR running around. So coming into this, we were so aided by having like a a team of really filmmakers involved, whether that was some of our executive producers or, you know, Mike himself is a director, our DP has directed, uh, both of our editors have directed. So like, everybody is like a really talented storyteller that was able to bring like some sort of expertise and like background to the decisions that we had to make for this particular project. And so that must be nerve wracking when you set up this shot and Mike's like, you really like that shot? Yeah. Oh, I did that all the time. (laughs) You you want the camera there? Yeah. Cool. It was a conversation about the interviews though. We were, we were like, Cause he, he, he was like, I like the style where they're looking down the lens. I was like, it's my family. Why would they look down the lens and not look at me if I'm asking the questions? And it, it, I do he, want to talk about that a little bit more because both from like a process perspective and also just from like the workflow of like, you know, checking in with each other during an interview or like walk us through how that, that worked, how, how an interview was, was conducted. So yeah. And how the two of you work together on it. I'll first say that like very early on, we kind of, Mike has, no one knows more about this idea and this story than Mike, right? And then Jackson. And so coming into it, 
it was pretty clear that like, especially for the tone that we were going for, I, I don't have, I have some rapport with some of his family now, but coming into it, I had zero. And so it's like, if we're having an interview with Mike's grandmother, like you are never going to get better content for the show than if Mike, unless Mike is the one interviewing her. Right. And so it was really clear early on that Mike and Jackson, especially being kind of like these characters in the documentary and pseudo hosts needed to be the ones interacting with people on camera. So that was like very evident early on that we needed to do that. And so then we would do a lot of the prep together, right, Mike? We were writing all the questions together. And then Mike over the, I have to say, like over the course of this thing, like by the end, I basically didn't need to go to the interviews because Mike had become, Mike and Jackson both like became really good interviewers as we went through the process. And, you know, during we would like check in throughout, like when we were doing, you know, media swaps. And I was basically kind of, I would, I would prod sometimes from off camera, but it really didn't need to happen that often. I would mess up Mike's flow if he's in the middle of it. No, no, that's, that's what Tim was good at. It was basically that exact, uh, cause I would, I would sometimes be nervous depending on the family member. So I would forget questions or just kind of moving through this basically sheet of like, we need to ask this question to get this like episode or this, like try and like fill in the blanks that we had made in the writer's room. And then Tim would step in. He'd be like, I actually want to explore that further. Can you go? And I would always look at him and give him like this death stare. You're like, I'm working on it. Yeah, exactly. That was my next question, Tim. I'm more, I know how to warm her up. Um, Yeah, that's really funny. Did, um, Mike, did you feel like you grew as an interviewer and like in what ways do you feel like your your skills sharpened what what did you do differently from the beginning to the end i just think the nerves like once you got used to the process and once you kind of like got a little desensitized to all these people like bull rushing into this house that like it fills up pretty quick and i just the nerves of like trying to keep the family distracted and everything but uh i i just remember tony he showed up in minden and he was just like for the first like the first set of interviews and so the first day happens and he like meets with all of us and he's like just so you guys know we have to fill eight episodes all right we got to we got to we got to come in hot like we got to fill we fill eight episodes and he's like what we're getting is great but i just know you guys need to bring it and not that that like like shaped how we approach things but it also gave us a lot more confidence to cuz i was just nervous about offending anyone or just like any one of my family members being uh uncomfortable and i was just like okay but you are making a television show you are making you sold something in a genre that's very specific uh so you need to you need to balance those two and tim was very nice and like figuring out when i was uncomfortable and kind of being like okay here's where we could push and here's what we'll pull back and that kind of thing and do you get like releases from your family before the interview starts yeah yeah, it's the it was the funniest thing because I have this moment that I wish we caught on camera was my aunt was signing a release and she was like, wow, there's a lot of trust involved in this thing, huh? And I was like, yeah, yeah, there is, but don't worry. Uh, and then my one of my aunts was like, what if I don't like something you put in? And I was like, well, what do you not like that we said? Like, anyways, there's, so the releases was an awkward thing because then it like gets legal weird. So yeah, most yeah. family members were fine with it, but. 
Do you find, and Tim, I'd love to hear your opinion on this too from other projects, like that there's an order to the questions that yields the best results, you know, like start with like the easy ones or start with the crazy ones or give the pause? Like, Yeah, I, I think it always, it always changes. It really depends on the project. You know, I think that in general, a lot of times we would go through the, the factual stuff kind of first and then, you know, would kind of because you know the way memory works it's like you want you have to as a when you're just talking about something you have to reacquaint yourself with whatever this topic matter is before you oftentimes before you really reconnect to the emotions or whatever you just kind of need to be in that frame of mind and so but you never know right it could be as soon as something is mentioned it comes back for somebody so it really is it depends on the moment and that's that's kind of one of the things i like a lot about documentary especially when you're interviewing people is you got to kind of like go in with a plan so that you have a really good idea of what you are hoping to get out of it. But almost inevitably, like once you check those things off, like your favorite thing coming out of it is going to be a surprise. And if you're, if you're present for whatever happens there, then, you know, you're going to be open to whatever that thing is. And that's so many times and for heaven's sake, that's like what we ended up using in the interview. It was like this random fun moment where like Mike knew he wanted to have his grandmother call his mom while we were still rolling. Right. And it yielded a moment that's in the trailer where she's like, this is very professional, you know, and it's just, you know, but again, like so much of it also comes from Mike having this like deep knowledge of the people that we were going to be with and like, you know, so that's another thing I would say is like do as much research and pre-interviews and like get to know people as much as you can before you're bringing this really strange kind of intermediary in of like a huge camera or a small camera or a big light or a small light, extra people, whatever it is. It helps so much to have like a foundation before you do that. Yeah, it, it makes me think of when I used to do stuff at Ellen. I don't I'm probably legally not allowed to talk about this, but it's fine. Um we, we would we would do a thing where you know, I kind of had come from a, a background that was much more scripted and they would have what they called talent producers. And I kind of was like, well, we're, you know, I've already got a story producer who's going to be doing the interview and I'm going to like check in with them we're pointing cameras. What do we need a talent producer for as well? And it's literally just to spend, have a person who dedicates all of their time to making sure that the, whatever subject we're talking to is as comfortable as possible and as hyped up and as happy and as effusive as you would expect a person who's about to just, you know, uh, win a, a, lifetime supply of walmart shoes or whatever we were giving them you know what i mean it was like they were just like getting them amped up and that's a full-time job i could only imagine how strange that would be if it was also your my family right like mike was there much that you were doing off camera to kind of get people in a zone or like are you sidebarring i imagine people are texting you like don't make me look stupid i can't i'll never you know i was your nice aunt for your whole life or whatever like what was the behind the scenes like and how was the family relationship affecting that sort of conversation it was interesting i think that was hands down the biggest hurdle i had to jump over and like 
even when we were in the pitching room, right? It was like we were selling my family. We're like, Aunt Isabel, she's a piece of work. And it's just like, uh, so that felt strange. And in the writer's room, we were like planning segments or like being like, okay, let's go through this phase of the investigation with. So it all felt a little weird to me. And I was like, okay, this is going to be like a uh, process where we're going to get our feet on the ground. It's going to take a little bit to get everything, like get used to the idea. So for interviews, for example, it was all about like, taking people to like the other room while people set set like set up if they wanted to see it then it would be another conversation where it's like this is what he does and this is so just really making people like feel excited about what they're going to do because when you start rolling and then everyone goes quiet there's that moment because everything's bustling and everything besides the interviews uh which was just a process of kind of getting people's nerves out of the way. And like, as soon as you lock eyes with them and they're just talking to you, you get the best out of them, but they definitely look around and are kind of like dodgy at beat at the beginning. Uh, and then for the actual relationship, like the relationship was a lot of that where it was just trust. And even at points I didn't trust myself. And I was like, I was like a lot came down to Tim just reassuring me being like, Hey, we're not doing anything bad here. Okay. It's like, it's like eight hours, Mike. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was just like one of those echoey things in our brains. Right? Eight, eight hours, yeah, eight yeah, episodes, yeah. eight episodes. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, wait, I have one last question question about craft for Tim, which is we, we know the A cam is this wide shot of the interview. What's the B cam? Is that like something that you are um, like constantly that's moving? That's the other like, camera, Oren. Right. But is it like a profile? Is it like a, on a slider? Is it, are you getting hands? Like I imagine because of your editing background, you know what's going to cut and what's not going to cut. I have a tendency to like, oh, let's get the hands. Let's get this. Let's do that. And then in the edit, you're like, it's just weird to cut to hands. Exactly. Like, time, yeah. you know? I found the same thing. We, uh, It was kind of like a three-quarter kind of look. And we did do a, a wider lens. I think it was either a 35 or a 24 at times even on the A-can, kind of like the centered one. And then on the B can, the other one, uh, yeah, it was like a three quarter. And I think we used an 85 or something, something that was like really kind of tight too. Cause, and we stuck with their face, uh, pretty much the whole time, if not the whole time. And, you know, we knew that kind of like the, the elements that we wanted to have to work with in the end, the interview was just going to be one of several, whether that was like photos or other archival video or B roll that we shot or, um, you know, graphics, whatever it was. And so just stylistically, I knew we were going to only be using little bits and pieces visually of the interview. So we didn't really feel like we needed to do a whole lot more in the moment other than just make sure we had that covered. Are you getting like B-roll and stuff from people's houses, like trying to build out these characters from Mike's family? We, we wanted to get a lot of, as much as we could within the context of those interview shots. Like one reference that we had uh, was like Wild Wild Country. And the way that they just jammed, they had these really beautiful, like, you know, asymmetric wide interview frames, but they jammed so much kind of like character context within to those frames of shooting people in their environments. And we really loved that and kind of bring this kind of Canadian small town vibe in. We wanted to do that as much as possible. And then we, so that kind of is what informed our interview look. And then if it was an important location, we would grab some of that B-roll. For instance, Mike's Uncle Paul 
lives in Harold's house, the man who disappeared. So we spent like two days, you know, we, we did, we were there like three or four times because we kept realizing we needed extra shots of stuff in Harold's cabin. I have, I have one last question, which is more about the business side of this whole thing. Now that your publicist is not with us anymore, I can get all the juicy details. So like, so you made this show for Paramount Plus, which is a new streaming network, right? Like, I guess I'm just curious how the whole business part of it all works. Is it a union show? How many weeks do you shoot? Is it like, how does the pay structure work? I, I guess it just, just how is it like a how regular show? How much money did you show? make? Yeah, not exactly like that, but like, I'm curious, you know, there's a yeah. lot of producers, a lot of EP, there's director and filmmakers and the subject and network and CBC and Paramount and Muse and Funnier Die. Like how, how does it, how does like the whole thing work? And like, I guess I'm curious about, I know Mike, you come a little bit more from a web world and scripted world and Tim, you come more from a doc world. How does this compare to those other projects that you've had in the past? For me, uh, We've never, this was our first like big, I guess Tim too, but he's edited on big Netflix shows and stuff. For us, it was just a fully different world of, uh, so we also sold it to CBC in Canada for the Canadian rights. So it's on CBC Gem in Canada, but. And is it SAG? Like, are you in SAG? No, so it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a non-union show uh, because we're playing ourselves and it's a documentary. So all the crew is non-union. And if it, we were filming in Canada, so the only real people that were from LA were or from the States was Tim, our composer, uh, because we actually had to hit a certain amount of Canadian oh, crew Cancun, members. Right? Yeah, exactly. So when we asked to like, oh, what can we do? Uh, American DP, they were like, no, because that's actually, two points. Let's go ahead and clarify that a little bit, actually, because I, we talk about Canada and the way that those rules work, but like... Honestly, I, it's always hearsay for me. Like, I don't even know exactly how it works. So, just walk us through it real quick for us, Mike. Yeah, I, uh, I'll do my best. I'm also sure. like a little, but basically, what happens is if you film in Canada, there's a certain amount of tax credits that you can apply for with your production. And, but in order to get those, you have to have a certain amount of points, uh, which is like called CanCon points, I believe, or something. Right, for uh, Canadian content, right? Yeah, so each above the line creative counts for a certain amount of points. So Jackson and I, writers, were two points. The stars, two points. And you start to like gain these amount of points. But when you get Tim on board, we lose two points because he's American. It's just like, so you have to really be like, is Tim worth it? Is sure. this weird yeah, yeah. nobody worth, worth it? it. <laughs> uh, but Was he? Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, he was. He saved my life. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> You'd give us three uh, points for this. Yeah, guy. <laughs> yeah exactly. Uh, but yeah, so it's it's a so for that aspect, it was like it was very Canadian the production side of things, like all Toronto crew. Did you guys edit it in Canada too? Yeah, it was all so same thing. Above the line was editors, and Tony has a composer, Darian. Darian Shulman. Shulman, this is just lovely composer, lovely man, and makes great music. So we we we. We gave up some of our points for his music and it was very worth it. But basically that means that you get a certain amount of tax credits and like also then it sounds like it was a co-production between a number of different entities. So the money is spread out in a very specific yeah. way. That's interesting. And, you yeah, know, exactly. I think that um, as far as me, I came in and it was like a contract job for me. So, you know, there was a con. Like you're a director for yeah, hire. Yeah, exactly. Director for hire for this series, eight episodes. And like, that's, that's kind of 
Sure. No, no yeah. residuals or anything yeah, like nothing that. Like yeah. That. yeah. But yeah we have the same, we have the same is, thing is to deliver the show, right? Like your, your contract says you have to be involved. Exactly. In edit, right. And, and so that's a little different from the way that, you know, an editing work I've done in the past, especially in TV. I mean, like it varies depending on what you're working on, but especially in like doc TV, which is kind of where I kind of come from is usually like a weekly rate. So that was kind of like a different way of working for me is like, you know, you get paid every week for this and for this, you get paid when you deliver the first episode. So yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. We had this or like half up front, half thing. at the yeah. end type of thing. Right. Yeah. And the, 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 one of the other things I was going to comment on was the framework was very strange. Like I thought filming a documentary would be like, Oh, we just got to follow the story. What are we doing today? But it's like, because you have so many like 12, 13 people on set that all have day rates, it's like you're filling your days. So like production coordinators are making sure it's like, if you're not doing this, it's like, well, definitely write something that you guys can do in this day. And like, so you have like a schedule that you guys are trying to hit each day. Whereas I thought it was like, let's go talk to this person. (laughs) Yeah. And and there is a world where, you know, it's a, a even teenier tinier crew and it's like you know there's an unmanned camera and like you're directing everything and it's it is like two or three additional bodies right but like it's a lot harder to make a television show with the kind of apparatus of a studio and a network involved walk us that's i think maybe the other missing part of all of this is like who who were you reporting were you reporting to like how many different bodies were like giving you notes and what sort of oversight was there? Yeah. Are you sharing dailies and all that stuff? We shot a lot of footage and I think that there was a process set up near the beginning where some of the network folks were able to see some dailies, but you know, when we're sending back like four or six hours of footage a day, you know, that's, they're busy, successful people. Like they're not, you know, and even if they do click on it, you know, it's like verite footage. They're like, I don't know what's going on right here. I don't know what's going on right here. So um, eventually we didn't have to do that. And the way that it kind of worked is like we had these kind of this um, the American network and then the Canadian network. And luckily, I mean, everybody was like very uh, supportive. They obviously loved Mike and Jackson and the idea. And so I think that ba- the way we worked was like, with our executive team and kind of the the creatives involved, we like kind of formed like this brain trust essentially. And we kind of made sure that everything that got, we, we shared some stuff between us that was like, would not ever go to beyond that, that small group of people. But, you know, we all worked really, really hard to make sure that then whatever was shown to our other partners internally, like, was of a certain level of caliber so that we could like maintain that trust that the networks had given us and you know have like the real kind of bigger conversations that we needed to have along the way and like one of the biggest notes as mike mentioned earlier which is always a question was the balance between the comedy and the mystery and so we could have those those discussions but it was only once our team could kind of like you know, birth it into a certain level of being watchable. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It is funny. I, I remember early on when I started doing work professionally, I would like put together shot lists or, you know, like a little bit of a document here or there or whatever. And I would, someone would ask to see it and I would like share it with one or two people. 
and I would be like, hey, you know, this is just this is just like the back of the napkin sort of situation. It's not ready for prime time. And I realized very quickly, as soon as you share it with literally anyone, it's it's public domain. It's like everyone's out there to see it. Right. So like if you you have to you're representing the way that you work and and the progress of the project, right? Whether that's something formative like a shot list or something like that, or a, a, a assembly cut or a rough cut or whatever, you have to be prepared to know that like that's going to go wide and people are going to understand that it's an early cut, but only exactly. so much. You know, it's also really valuable. Some of our producers are like so good at being the uh, the check that you sometimes need to say like, Hey man, I don't think you want to show this to anybody else. Like I trust you, yeah, but yeah, yeah. I don't think you want to show this further. But you're gonna get it there. But let's keep this between exactly. us. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and you know that can sometimes like sting a little bit or put you on your back heel, but ultimately serves you well because you want to retain that trust from the next person who doesn't know your work and doesn't know you know, all the nitty gritty of where it's come from and where it's actually going, you know? And it's also kind of like one of the hidden most important things that an EP does, right? Like I am surprised at the idea of like them even like flying all the way to Canada necessarily, right? Like that's, that's going above and beyond, but like the, having the experience to like be that check and that balance for you all is the main role in a lot of ways. It's not just like, oh, I'm putting my name on it. It's like, no, I'm going to protect you and guide you. And does that mean that they need to be in the trenches with you every single day shooting? No, certainly not. That actually maybe would make it harder for them to do their other job, right? Which is have a more macro understanding of the project that you're Kind of like being a coach, you know? Yeah. And like we were the players. They're kind of like coaching us up, motivating us in certain ways reprimanding us in some ways you know yeah telling you to stop whining yeah, get back to work <laughs> fill up those eight episodes. A great analogy yeah <laughs> no. yeah, yeah, yeah. just um, stay on the bench and low wait sorry what was um <laughs> as if you had a coach man. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah okay my second to last question is kind of dumb but on the same topic of like working with all these different companies with with cbc with funnier die all these are you allowed to take selfies on set and put them on Instagram while you're shooting this show? It really wasn't like a this is the Zack Schneider Justice League cut. Like it was it was it was a very one of the things we didn't want to do is spoil anything from the mystery. If we were actually making progress, we didn't want to so but part of it was kind of how we talked about was the outreach. So we actually started like Facebook groups and not our personal Instagrams, but on Facebook we we're posting being like Here's the police reports. Like, if anyone knows any of the names, reach out to oh, us. Sure. But, uh, like, like posting genuine content, though, like, or, or real clues in a way that is different than just like, you know, like, check out all the awesome. Yeah, lights. exactly. Yeah, yeah. That was the really conversation that we had to have, though, with like all the partners involved. It was like a lot of this idea is predicated upon in the like, you know, raising interest in the town. So, how much of this can we, you know, give away and not you know some people were concerned that we would be spoiling our own show but other folks were saying well you know if it's in the local newspaper in Minden Ontario how much of a spoiler really is that and you know we we ended up kind of doubling down on the idea of if we can just kind of keep pushing as much information out there as we can that's going to give us the best chance of getting something back from the community that then helps our investigation. 
Yeah, generally speaking, I don't think that spoilers in that capacity actually deter viewership at all. In fact, I think it's the opposite, right? Like if the the guy who like solved the mystery, he's like, I found the body, you know, like he would tell everyone in town and whether you were so stoked that he figured it out or you were mad at him for like he's bragging about it for forever, everyone's going to watch, right? And that's like a, a small scale situation, but like... You know, when you find out that the Flash is in the new Justice League movie or whatever, if you care to learn that information, you were going to see the movie anyway. Son of a bitch. Well, uh, yeah, my final question, which has nothing to do with spoilers, is uh, did you figure out what happened to your uncle? I mean, that's that's the famous question. <laughs> but uh, you, and the, the show's out now and uh, March, it came out March 4th. Uh, for heaven's sake, on Paramount Plus, so you can find out if you fi- if we find my uncle, my great great uncle. But people will be satisfied with the ending, no matter what. Wait, how can people <laughs> watch it? Does it cost money to watch it on Paramount Plus? Paramount Plus has a seven day free trial. <laughs> there you and, go. <laughs> uh, it's a uh, it's a uh, and if you live in Canada, CBC Gem is free, so uh, check it out either. Ooh. On can I use a VPN to? Uh, to- log in to cbc through from canada okay, i mean Mike's technology's crazy no. technology's <laughs> crazy no when he's talking what i'm talking about well awesome what's what's next for you guys it's a great question i mean our, our we've we've had to confirm because we basically like when march 4th happened two weeks prior we had to we were just locking the last episode like the tightest timelines so when it finally came out it was this big like did they all come out at once? Yeah, it was kind of like the true crime binge, so you could all watch. Uh, but anyway, so we we were all, like Tim, Jackson, and I especially were kind of like, oh, what's out? And then the way the world works is like we all have like attention spans of goldfish. So it was just like, all right, let's move on. Like, yeah, I want to see more from you guys. Like, what's yeah, next? Yeah. And you guys are like, never oh. going to work again, right? Yeah, that, yeah that's exactly. That's where you're out in your headspace. You're like, oh, but I had one good idea, and that's that. Uh oh, <laughs> yeah. But uh, for 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 me, like Jack said, I just got managers, like hopefully like credible managers. Uh, and they are, and uh, so we're excited to kind of develop again. And we're in both the scripted space and unscripted, and like playing with that genre bending world. So uh, till then, we'll make dumb YouTube videos and see what happens. Sounds like a plan. When this project was really just kind of like coming down to the wire, and you know one challenge that we kind of had to overcome was doing this whole thing remotely uh through covid and you know our editors are were just so good and able to work on their own which is critical to you know what i you know i think i'm proud of the show i feel like it's a success and that was so critical but like it also took a lot more kind of like uh a lot of time on my part kind of just you know you have it's just a lot of time communicating and like you know since you can't just like walk into a bay with somebody and just you know rap about something you got to be like Mm -hmm. or even point at a clip you can't even be like hey move that there you know yeah i i think i underestimated how much time it would take to like come up with a clear note that is actionable and can like kind of you can move things forward with so anyway long story short this project has like had all of my time for the last year and a half and so now I'm kind of in the same process of like trying to figure out what's next, you know, working up some different doc ideas with some people that I've worked with before, some people that I even worked with on, on this project. And, uh, 
you know, trying to push some of those things forward. So we'll see, but it's all kind of like early stage stuff. Do you have reps as a director? So I have a manager, which, uh, you know, half, I got a manager basically right when I got this job because I had no idea how to kind of go through the, like that contract I mentioned earlier. I had no idea how to go through that process. And so I just needed somebody to kind of guide me through that and like, oh, this is an entertainment lawyer. Like you should have this person to look this over. And so I have a manager and I like him a lot. Uh, It's just during this project, I didn't have a whole lot of uh, bandwidth to like really understand what that relationship is supposed to be and kind of like build that up. And so that's the process that I'm kind of like going through now. And I got to say, I never really thought too much about having a manager, but it is a lot of, it's really nice to have somebody who like, you can, you know, kick a seed of an idea to, and they can kind of either expand on it or like point you in the right direction of like, maybe consider this or that without really like judging you on it. You know, it's nice. Well, awesome guys. Well, um, uh, where can listeners uh, keep track of what you guys are up to learn more about what you're doing? Do you tweet? Do you Instagram? What? Just, uh, you know, set a Google alert for your names. What's, what's the deal? Yeah, no, you can. Uh, so my Mike Milden on Instagram, Twitter. Uh, we also the sketches we mentioned in uh, this episode is Trophy Husbands Comedy on YouTube. So you can watch our our dumb little sketches and uh, hopefully laugh a little bit and then hit refresh a couple times, jack those views up a little bit. Please, please. <laughs> I uh, you, I'm on social media. I ghost a lot. I'm not a big poster. But like, I think on Instagram, I'm 15 T Johnson and on Twitter, I'm Tim Johnson 15. And my email is timothy.johnson15. So, uh, <laughs> you know. Yeah, that's some- 15 is the, that the year you It's actually really random. So when from- I was in college, I uh, got a randomly generated, you know, email and it was T Johnson uh-huh. 15. <laughs> because how you know that's why you shouldn't set up a google alert sure. for me because tim johnson you're just going to get a lot of random stuff um yeah, so the yeah. 15 kind of just stuck terrible story yeah, that's really funny that's, so that's funny. great i love no that, that is good that. uh it's like pen 15 yeah, yeah there exactly. you go awesome guys well we could keep talking uh but the show is uh for heaven's sake and uh we'd love to have you guys uh hang out and endorse with us for a little bit uh, unpaid endorsements are you down love to yeah unpaid endorsements so my uh my endorsement is actually something that Oren would love which is a rare endorsement from me do you guys know a uh, 4k downloader the the application 4k downloader we, we've talked a lot about different youtube downloading apps over the years but this is the only one that feels consistent for me uh and reliable 4K video downloader That's 4k amazing. video downloader yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Amazing. See, he loves it already. But so, if you're in the uh, uh, situation where you need to say pull really high res stills, and so you want to download a YouTube video, or you're cre- say creating a repomatic like we talked about before, or you just need to like you know pull a little bit of music, yeah, you want to download a Taylor over. Swift music video and put it on your own YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. You one could do that, or a more likely, you know, you need it for pitch purposes. But uh, this is the most reliable app that I have found basically. So it's, it's amazing. Yeah, there's and there's no malware, even though it seems too good to be true. 
Yeah, it was recommended through Tech Radar, which tends to be pretty good about like sniffing that stuff out. So 4K video downloader. That's my endorsement. Mike, you want to go for it, buddy? In the process of making the documentary, we had this charity called Please Bring Me Home. And what they do is they actually help families with cold cases where police, like, police have closed the case and they help like solve these cases. So they actually helped a lot, a lo- like connect us to a lot of different things like our GPR company and a lot of things we did in the documentary. And they're just a good cause. Uh, so they deserve a shout out. And I feel like we haven't shouted them out and endorsed them enough, but uh, good people doing good things. And one little small one was I watched the Sasquatch trailer for a Sasquatch documentary on Hulu. And I haven't seen the thing, but watch the trailer. It looks real good. <laughs> I don't know. I have endorsed Sounds it a trailer, but I'm yeah. excited. Yeah, no, that worked. And what was the name yeah. of the organization? The cold case? Please bring me home.com. Please bring me home.com. Cool. Uh, Tim, what you got, sir? I was going to unpaid endorse uh, something I saw recently on Hulu. Uh, maybe you guys have seen it. It's called In and of Itself. I just watched it the other night and I was kind of blown away. I'm still thinking about it. There's kind of like this weird code that is like surrounded it of like, don't say too much about In and of Itself for fear of spoiling it for other people. But uh, I'll just say that it like combined illusion and emotion and like ideas of identity in 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 this like really wild like storytelling manner that like you know you feel things when you don't expect to feel things and like it's just so it was a wild watch and unlike anything i've seen before is it a is it a movie it's a uh it's it's like a filmed live show but yeah it's like it was a live show in new york that like they filmed and cut together I will say this, having watched Deer Hunter relatively recently and then watched uh, In and of Itself, there's like a weird Russian roulette through line in both of those pieces. And it threw me for a little bit of a loop, I will say. So if you're meaning to watch both of them, I would start with In and of Itself and then end with Deer Hunter just so that you're not constantly... The Russian roulette collection. Yeah, 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 exactly. So you're not thinking about... Christopher Walken the whole time. Yeah, and this is from the same director that did Bowfinger and Stepford Wives. and Yeah, he's Yoda. Yeah, and he's Yoda. Yeah. Yoda, he is. Yeah. <laughs> Dumb. Um, yeah. Okay, Captain, so. Take it away. I got, I got uh, three bad ones, so that's why I'm doing three. Uh, because two of them are like basically re-endorsing things I've endorsed already. But uh, our number one guy that we endorse all the time, Pony Smasher, David F. Stanberg. Pony Smasher. Yeah. As an inspiration, um, you know, director of Shazam and whatever, a bunch of other things. Lights out. He just put out this new video. Have you seen it, Matt? The Robert Zemeckis, Zemeckis Wonder. I have. Yes. Yeah. Oh, just so, so good. He And he talks about, I think it's relevant to what we talked about, which is, um, you know, with Tim and Mike about how, and even Matt, you mentioned that with a small crew, you can shoot really quick and do all these setups and do all these different things. But once you bring 12 people in, it just takes a lot longer to get a setup going. And so David F. Sandberg talks about how these moving masters, you know, you do one setup, but you get like five or six different shots in one setup. Um, And you can shoot a whole scene in an interesting way with this moving master and then one other shot, one over the shoulder shot or one close up. So, and I just thought, you know, we we all like cool wonders and we all kind of know about these like Citizen Kane moving masters and things, but I 
just like the way he articulated this idea that when you have a big crew, it takes longer to do things where I think the normal uh, instinct for people not in the film industry would think a big crew would let you work faster. In fact, it's the exact opposite. Can we have a, a little tangent about that, actually? So in he in, in the in the video, he's showing a lot of different Zemeckis like moving masters, and it's super cool. Uh, and he a lot from What Lies Beneath. That's the name of the movie, right? Like the uh, the Harrison Ford M- Michelle Pfeiffer movie. But there's a it's one of his most famous shots. There's one where the camera starts above ground kind of like pointing down and michelle pfeiffer is dead on the ground and then the camera booms down below the ground and all of a sudden the the plane of the floor is is transparent as as though michelle pfeiffer is like on plexiglass or something and i don't know how he did it actually i'm sure it's like the orson wells style like you pull as the camera is tilting up you pull the floor out i would think I guess maybe, maybe. or you I raise know, her, man. but I think it's easier to pull. because it's a it's a wide shot when it's up high. Like I almost it, I, like maybe it's it's a combination of like motion control or something. I don't know. I'm sure there's a listener out there who's like, yeah, it's on YouTube. Stupid. I'm going to shoot shot a test, still, Matt. It blows gonna, my mind. I'm going to shoot that shot. I I would love I would you. love for you to show me how he does it or or the lo-fi version. And I'll it. do that it without awesome. with no VFX. Cool, awesome. That I would love that. That, that would be very cool. So second guy that I've endorsed before, Hayden Hillier-Smith, who's Logan Paul's editor uh, that edits all his vlogs, who makes these like insanely amazing video essays about editing, in my opinion. You might not agree with me. He just made a new video about pacing and about editing and about how he gets ideas for things. And he kind of just talks about how he like steals ideas from other people and he thinks that it's totally fine to copy other people's work because when you remake it yourself it like automatically becomes like your voice so you know like take things you love make your own version of them and don't feel guilty for stealing things because that's like he he goes through this whole comparison of these like stanley kubrick shots compared to you know shots from like the 1930s and he's like we all that's we all do this we all get inspired by other things and there's such a anxiety about feeling like you're not making something original but he's like just by the the act of making something, even if you're making a copy of someone else's, it, it is original because it's like your version of that. And I, I thought it was cool. Also, something that was ins- I was inspired by you guys is this video I saw today. Do you guys know about All Gas, No Breaks? It's a, these guys that like do these insane interviews. And I just watched them like interview all these partiers in Miami during spring break, you know, when they had a curfew and they like shut down Miami. And the interview style is so weird and the editing style is so kinetic like he shoots obviously in like i don't know 1080p or whatever 4k and he just keeps doing these cut-ins that are like these digital zoom-ins to things that are happening with the interviewer you know their face what they're holding what they're doing it's just like so vibrant and lively and the interviewer is like barely talking he has this like tj miller like vibe and he just like puts a mic in someone's face and doesn't say anything and it's just so, it, I don't know, it just was really, uh, I'd never seen him. I know he's like a, was a big YouTuber or something, but um, all gas, no breaks, Miami. For for his, like his YouTube channel, because I love it. And I, uh, the weirdest way, I also like, he gets himself in the craziest places, like uh, the BLM pro- protests. He was like in the thick of it and he, he was in all these riots. He was right there. Uh, and I almost trust him as like a, a 
form of journalism because he's just like he doesn't have a point of view other than just like getting everybody's side and like obviously it's meant to be comedic and like i mean a lot of people that he interviews are just naturally comedic but i don't know i I just he he puts himself in situations that the media usually doesn't and i really really like him for that obviously the miami stuff is a joke but what he does he does do everything so i love that love that endorsement well thanks well uh if you guys have any endorsements and want to let us know about them email us at just shoot it pod at gmail.com or if you have any questions or comments about uh what tim and mike said if you uh think you know where mike's uncle is and we'd also love to get an email from you um and you can follow us on all social media we're at just shoot it pod i'm on Instagram at O'Kaplan. I'm on Twitter at Smitey Pileg. And I'm at Mr. Matt Benlow. This episode was edited by Sarah Weirda. Our social media maestro is Derek Aiello. Additional consulting producing is done by Ali Kornfeld. You're listening to The Artist Jazar, provided by the Free Music Archive. Uh, thanks, everyone. Bye. Thanks, Tim and Mike. Mm-hmm.